It is so different. I sometimes say makgeolli is kind of like sake on crap. This is The Drinking Buddy Show, where we explore food, craft beverage pairings, and the entrepreneurs and tastemakers behind them. I'm Frank Rogers, founder of Drinking Buddy Artisan Snacks. And on today's show, I'll be chatting with Yongha Jong, brewer and founder of Yongha Brews, learning about Korean Seoul, or alcohol, and its fascinating sometimes underground history. And then we'll hear Yongha's hopes for a future microbrewery and a position for makgeolli among globally popular beverages. Yongha grew up in Los Angeles, and like many Koreans and Korean Americans, enjoyed beverages like makgeolli and soju. Her grandmother had brewed makgeolli at home, in secret, as a side business on her farm. When Yongha went to Korea to study traditional music, she became aware of a renaissance in Korean alcohol making, leading to her own apprenticeship. She now shares her knowledge here in Los Angeles. I've just been focusing on alcohol because I want to uh, eventually open a brewery. I would have some teaching stints here and there. Mostly it's Korean Americans in their 30s and 40s who want to engage with some sort of Korean food activity. People are used to the plastic bottle makgeolli and they want to try something else. They want to be able to make it at home. And most Korean families, they know someone in the family had made makgeolli a long time ago. Like someone's granny made it, for sure. They all made it in secret. Now, the way they make it is very, very different. I can teach you how to make granny makgeolli, but we could also make different kinds of alcohol. So during Korea's prohibition era, let's say post-war, so during the colonial period, you can't brew at home. Home brewing is illegal. And then brewing with rice became illegal. So what did people do? They needed booze to give to their spirits, and people wanted booze, so people would brew in secret. And normally they would take a month or longer to brew, to ferment. But to reduce your chances of violating laws, you would try to brew as fast as possible. It's not the ideal way of making alcohol. Let's say you do it in three days, you do it in a week. And that will be very different from taking the multiple steps in Korean alcohol and sake. You don't just cook the rice, add the fermentation starter, and let it turn to alcohol, you have these different steps. You let the yeast colony grow, and then when the yeast are ready to eat, then you add more rice. So you have these steps, and all of that had to happen in one step. I think the assumption people have is that because I'm ethnically Korean, I'm doing this to find heritage, which is not exactly the way I approach what I do. I have people coming to me all the time and asking me, oh, and can we have a sul class and can we brew? And they want to share and they want to practice what we call, I guess, heritage or tradition because it's so far removed from our everyday life. And I think when people ask me, oh, are you doing this because you are Korean or you're you know, seeking heritage or connecting to your motherland, it's hard for me to answer directly. What got me into Korean alcohol was totally gratuitous. I was in Korea working on my doctoral dissertation research. I was working on a PhD on ethnomusicology, anthropology of music. And I was looking at a tradition called pansori, it's a solo singing storytelling tradition with a single barrel drum accompaniment. So 
I was looking at this reemergence or reconstruction of this Pansuri tradition in the 21st century among the Pansuri stakeholders, trying to re-engage with this tradition, but also to make sense of it for contemporary Koreans for whom all traditional Korean music is totally foreign to them because most Koreans are not living in 19th century or 15th century Korea. The idea that Korea is of this other thing and we in the West or we're living in modernity, there's sort of like dichotomy. Some people seem to have these binaries, but Korean alcohol tradition, the last hundred some years has been so tumultuous that Korean alcohol has trained tremendously. Yongha takes us through the history of Korean alcohol brewing, from a traditional homebrewed beverage to an underground one. But that is interesting because I wouldn't even say that's not traditional because it also depends on how you view tradition. So in the traditional sense, if you're saying before industrialization, before the Japanese colonials brought so-called modernity to the Korean peninsula, Korean alcohol was produced in the home and mostly produced by the elites. It wasn't like every home had their secret brew recipe and handing it down. It's not quite like that. Imagine in the 19th century, 18th century, most Koreans were very poor. Most of them were peasants. One of the most prized, heavily referenced documents authored by a woman in the 17th century she was of elite class. She was a young one, and um, she wrote a book to give to her daughter-in-law on Korean foods and drinks. And of about a third of the 50-some recipes are alcohol recipes. So that just shows how important Korean alcohol was in the Korean food world. And you had to do this because you had to respect your ancestral spirits, lest you want bad harvests. You offer alcohol to your dead ancestors because you want to give them the best foods. And there are a lot of Koreans who did not have access to food, not enough rice. So not every household was able to produce alcohol in the same way. Although there were a large minority of very wealthy elites, the madams of those households would supervise the alcohol making and probably the peasants were making the booze. So you would have Nagore's hake, then you have the filtered hake. So if you think about that equivalent in Korean alcohol, very coarsely filtered, the nigori is the makuli. The elites would give it to their workers. And then they would get the clear version, the amber clear alcohol, which is what you call yakju or chongju. And when you distill that, that becomes soju. But of course, the soju that we're familiar with in the grocery stores and the green bottles, that is not the soju that they drink. First of all, the green bottle soju you get at HMAR isn't made with rice. It's made with the cheapest starches available, taro, potatoes. It's just like food-grade ethanol. And Koreans, after the Korean War, were very poor and people need booze. <laughs> And they made it illegal. Yeah. Park Chingy made it illegal to make booze with rice because of a rice shortage. And so you had this industry that came out of post-war Korea and you made cheap booze for Koreans and people got used to cheap booze. 
And you do that for several decades, people associate that with soju. And most Koreans in Korea um, actually have not had quote-unquote traditional soju. And in the last couple decades, there have been people studying these historical texts, trying to reconstruct, trying to understand what is Korean alcohol. So that is the backdrop. And I went to Korea to study tradition. And I realized that even though it's a different field, all the concepts there, this idea of revisiting what is quote-unquote Korean, what is traditional, what is also contemporary, but also Korean, all these issues, they intersect in the Korean alcohol world as well. When Korea became colonized by the Japanese in 1910, everything changed. And that is when, in the 20th century, you could levy taxes on alcohol. That is when homebrewing became illegal. And the alcohol production in the home changed drastically. First, you don't want to pay fines. You could only brew alcohol if you have a brewery license. And that is when men became more active as brewers. It left the home and became a men's activity. And then you have the giants like Chinlo, kind of like the Anheuser-Busch equivalent of Korea. They define what is hui. But before the 20th century, it was all led by women. They would have recipes. They would show. It would hand down in families. As for my grandmother... She had a farm and there were people who would come to eat. The mm. local laborers would come and they, they need to eat and they would ask for makgeolli. So she started mm. making makgeolli to make a little extra money to feed her family. And that's what a lot of people did. I mean, people love booze. People need to drink. <laughs> My granny, she grew wheat. She grew rice. So with the harvest, she would ferment coarsely grain wheat to make the fermentation starter. She'd ferment that for a few weeks, age that, and then when it's cooler and when you get the new rice harvest, and you start brewing. And this is and a wild fermentation process, right? It's very wild, yes. So you're familiar with koji, right? Koji is single yeah. strain mold. Imagine it's like wild koji, all the different kojis together. So whatever is in the environment. So you'd have different wild molds, wild yeasts and all kinds of bacteria, they all grow together in a coarsely ground, generally wheat cake, nuduk, although it could be other grains. When it's great, it's amazing, but it is hard to control because they're wild. And I'm just hoping sure. that more and more people will get into researching nuduk. There's not enough research on nuduk. And once there is, I really do think that makgeolli can, it can really be a world drink. Everyone can have makgeolli the way we all enjoy wine and beer. So I'm hoping that I can take part in that journey. When we return, Yongha shares her goal for opening a microbrewery in Los Angeles. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And if you'd like to support us, be sure to try our one-of-a-kind Japanese artisanal snacks and pick up a Drinking Buddy hat, coaster, and more. Go to www.thedrinkingbuddyshop.com and click on Shop. A microbrewery where you have a few food items to go with the alcohol. So it's brewed in house, and when it's good, you serve it with good foods. That's how it was done in Korea a long time ago, and I feel that that's the way it should be. So you need that locality for people to appreciate this drink because I don't want to pasteurize. I can't distribute widely. 
But now with this coronavirus, I got to just get to find a way to produce commercially. The unfortunate thing in Korea is you can homebrew now. You can't really do a microbrewery concept with food so easily. It's prohibitively expensive. It's just so expensive to run a business like that in Korea. So unless you've got your millions and millions, it's hard to implement that sort of concept, although that's available here. You don't have breweries in Korea where they brew on site and you have some food and you get to visit the brewery and talk to the brewer. I think if they were able to do that, traditional alcohol would be a lot more popular, but that isn't possible in Korea yet. And I hope that changes. Yongha explains the process of filtering Seoul to become makgeolli. When we say filtered, it's just you'd have very fine mesh. One way of doing it, I guess, is, you know, you have like a wine press and you make sure that just the yeast are filtered out so it doesn't keep fermenting. But generally what people do and what people did is they would sew a mesh bag. You're just getting the liquid out at that point. You're getting a little bit of the populace, probably some like little of the proteins, a little of the fibers and the minerals. You're getting so much. And that, and generally that mixed with water is what people understand as makgeolli. But that makgeolli is also very different from the makgeolli, the commercially sold makgeolli. I was going to do a lecture on providing some sort of historical context to makgeolli, the different kinds of alcoholic beverages in Korea. One of the things I want to do was provide people, here's some commercial makgeolli, and it's consistent. It's great for what it is. And here are the different kinds of makgeolli that I am passionate about. Summer gets a bit hot, so brewing-wise, it's not ideal. I don't want people to buy all kinds of fancy gadgets to mix in homebrewed makgeolli. It's unnecessary. I think people do need that education awareness to know the different kinds of alcohol. I mean, you're used to Pabst beer and then you find a really nice farmhouse ale. It's a whole world of a difference, right? And I think people will get really into it. It's an explosion of flavor. So much going on. It's so complex. For a Korean American or someone that's part of that diaspora, there's obviously that heritage factor. But I think people that aren't Korean would still find it fascinating. It's such a different world, I think, than what they're used to in terms of alcohol. It is so different. I sometimes say makgeolli is kind of like sake on crap. The fermentation principles are very similar. The only difference is sake generally, it's not wild fermentation. It's very controlled. The sake researchers have researched all the different yeasts. They know exactly what kind of rice to use, what kind of water, what you sort of yeast. And then you know, even before you brew, what you're going to have. We don't have that for makgeolli yet. So it's in a sense, makgeolli is where beer and wine was 100 years ago, before it got industrialized, before it became the drink for the world. That's very exciting. My dream is to work with a bunch of scientists. And we're figuring out which different kinds of molds, which Aspergillus orizae strain and Kawachi and this other strain, along with these sorts of strange wild yeasts and rice varieties yield XYZ. You know, that would be so fascinating. It's going to take a long time, but it's exciting. Yongha talks about the current state of makgeolli education. 
As for Makali education, there's a dearth of that. There is a friend of mine in New York, Jizong Chun. She's an excellent home brewer. She was a sommelier for Korean alcohol in Korea. There is Alice Chun in Brooklyn. She's opening up her Makali brewery this summer. There are lots of Korean Americans trying to get into the Korean alcohol game. I went to Korea and then I learned with different masters. And Mm -hmm. I think the anthropology background definitely helped. I mean, I'm fluent in Korean. It was kind of nice to be vindicated on my last trip. One of my master brewers told me, Yongha, you understand the tradition because you understand traditional Korean culture. You studied Pansu, you know what it's like to engage with the master. You know, there's that sort of master and student sort of relationship. Your teacher is like your God. (laughs) You learn. And I didn't learn for 15 years. I did several years, but that sort of experience is invaluable. So it also raises questions as to how I should commercialize or market my beverage because it's such a personal, it is getting handed down from one person to the next, you know, like doing no or shamisen or pansori. Tastes are changing and Yongha wants to be there to capitalize on that change. Now there's more interest in Korean foods from Korean Americans. You know, they want to support Korean American businesses Sundubu, Korean food's gone so popular. And the only thing is now you have more of these more upscale type Korean restaurants, but then you don't have any Korean alcohol to really go with the foods. So there is that niche market. And I think people are open, definitely open. There was a event I provided some alcohol for, and there are all these musicians from the South. This was a small music event. And people from Texas, North Carolina, they're really loving the makle. I was really surprised. I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's too dense. Maybe it's too thick, too much going on. Maybe a little too much funk for some folks. And no, I was really surprised just how well Southerners took to makle at that mm. event. Yongha has taught many classes and is always focused on driving home the tradition behind makle. For most people, they just want to make a simple beverage, like they're making kombucha. This isn't just like making kombucha. In some ways it is. A brewing science is a science. Nowadays, the education in Korean school is very interesting. Most people, they're going to basically juku-style learning programs, like a hagwon or a cram school. I mean, you're not going with other teenagers, mostly adults. And people are trying to rediscover what is Korean. I mean, most Koreans have never had quote-unquote traditional alcohol. It's like, you know, Americans, until people were really homebrewing and discovering different flavors and create new things, most people were used to Budweiser beer. And then their heads exploded. (laughs) It's like, whoa, there's this whole other world. We could do so many things with beer. And in the Korean context, there are lots of Koreans trying to rediscover. They're studying the historical texts, trying to understand what is Korean beverage, what is Korean alcohol. So there's a movement of people studying that. And the forerunners of that, I've learned from those forerunners. So while it is traditional, it's a different sort of tradition. It's not 
it's like a new tradition that came out of the desire to have tradition, if you will. And it's exciting that one of the seminal texts on Korean alcohol was authored in the 1600s. I fancy the idea of going through some of those recipes and teaching people how to execute them, read them, and execute those recipes. That'd be amazing. The academic's dream come true. <laughs> you can find Yongha on Instagram at Yongha Brews. That's Y O N G H A Brews. And visit her website at www.yonghabrews.com. Coming up on the Drinking Buddy Show, I'll be having a few drinks with Adam and Beef, the hosts of the Virtual Pub Podcast. We'll talk about the obscure island they met on, what brought them to Colorado and the craft beverage scene there, and we'll have them try one of our snacks. Thanks for listening to The Drinking Buddy Show. Be sure to subscribe and share it with your buddies. Check out our latest artisanal snack offerings at www.thedrinkingbuddyshop.com and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Take care and drink well.